possible if I could make the the perfect job for myself. You know, I'd be leading a project to help improve either, you know, the way we do phone dialing for phone banking, text banking, or, you know, even submitting your vote. Good deal. Well, hey, Oscar, welcome. Uh, really an honor to have you, my friend. And, you know, we always like to start this uh, this show, the Deferred Action Podcast, with uh, with a common icebreaker. So I'll ask you, um, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Hey, Hugo, thanks so much for having me. And what I had for breakfast this morning was actually a little bit of a mix-up. I was going to go for some bagels, but there was a traffic hold up right around the corner. So as soon as I made the turn, my ETA went from seven minutes to 20 minutes. And I had a meeting in 15 minutes. So instead, I just pulled back and had a bowl of cereal. Okay, nice and easy, nice and simple. Very good, my friend. Actually, skipped the breakfast this morning because I got right into some errands, etc. You know, I got the today's um, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, as you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, I have a, a day off to to get some stuff done, but especially this interview right now. So we'll, um, you know, we'll start with the, the biggest question, you know, who, who is Oscar Romero today? Who are you? Oh, I think that to summarize, I think Oscar Romero as of today is a software engineer looking to get involved with as much as possible in the social impact space. I've been a software engineer for the past two years and my full-time job doesn't have anything to do with this, but I do come from roots of being part of a program called Gondor Scholars and being an alumni. One of the biggest mottos that we were told whenever we were getting the scholarship was to pay it forward. And so I've taken that to heart and really kind of kept it with me for since 2013 when I got the scholarship. And to this day, I've been involved with several organizations in the triad area and the triangle area. Um, along with political organizations, as well as just Latinx organizations pushing the needle forward for the community, the undocumented space. And outside of that, I definitely enjoy some video games every now and then. I love keeping up to date with what's happening in the tech space. I actually just made a purchase two days ago where my girlfriend wasn't probably um, the most happy just because it was a pretty chunky uh, purchase, (laughs) but it was a Oculus Quest 2, getting into the VR space. So hopefully when that arrives, I'll be able to give you more details in the future about that. That's really cool. You know, it's um, it's always nice to meet other dreamers in, in the STEM space. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's an, a universal need in terms of human resources for this country. And so, I, you know, it's lovely to see, Oscar, that you're fitting that need as a dreamer. And uh, that's ever more valuable, my friend. And so in, in researching who you are, you know, I, I noticed that your father really was your first link to the U.S. Um, I read that he signed up for a migrant contract work in North Carolina for some time, you know, three months of really, really hard labor. And, um, you know, I have to shout out and respect your father. You know, I, I know how, how hard that can be through, through my dad's experience, but um, can you talk a little bit about 
your dad and, and his start in the U.S. Um, because I think it is a powerful thing for people to note. Yeah, yeah, no, kudos to your dad too. It's definitely a space that's really challenging and hard. And, you know, the questions I ask him now and just seeing him time travel in his eyes as he tells me these stories, it's definitely, you know, a, a big impact in his life. But, you know, it, it started in, in 96 or 97, roughly around that time where we were all three of us, me and my mom, my dad were in Mexico and we were living under the roof of my grandma's house and we were, we were making it by. He he was kind of, you know, getting out of high school in Mexico, um, studying uh, a short term career with, for electrician and ended up not paving out because I came along in the relationship. And so, like you said, he signed up for contract work and I don't know, man, the, the things he's told me to this point of both everything from transitioning fast forward into him doing it, him having to be in a country where he didn't speak any of the language, but he was still trying to connect with these people out on the field, back at home in the communal living that they were all in, you know, 15 people to this small, like almost, I think, a really small single wide, you could probably make it seem or a little bit larger than a single wide, but just very tight space. People would trade off making meals for each other and I don't know. I see it in his in his eyes whenever he looks back of the, these experiences that he had, both from like hanging out with them, drinking outside after work, and it, it's a lot. Um, and I know my mom also had her share of experiences while she was in Mexico with me while my dad worked. He, she was still trying to find a couple odd jobs here and there, and she would bring me along, you know, a little toddler for some of the jobs where she could. But it, it's a lot to see in our parents, and I think one of the biggest things I. I appreciate from from them is just the the amount of effort and perseverance they've had and the challenges they've overcome. It's it's just very very humbling to me. It's absolutely remarkable, um, and I I fully agree. Uh, and you know, I always say they they call us the dreamers, but really the the real dreamers were our parents. You know, I I, I am trying to put myself in your dad's shoes, and um, like you said in in the article you wrote on on your blog website, you know, it's almost as if he wasn't really completely aware of what he signed up for, but he acted in hope of a better life for, for you and for your family, you know, and have you ever had a chance to ask him given that, you know, uncertainty uh, and action driven by hope, how he looks back at, at that decision now? I mean, now that you have become who you become and your family is settled in the North Carolina, have you ever had a chance to ask him about a reflection? I think we are pretty much reflectors, both my parents and myself and my siblings as well. So yeah, I actually have had a good opportunity to talk with them and I try to visit them frequently. So we have chatted about that, but a little bit um, of what you said of like the dreamer piece to address that before I go on further with that is that, you know, my dad (laughs) jokingly would always tell my mom that he would envision this life of having a home, having a car and, you know, they, they milestone by milestone accomplished that. And he, so he's mm-hmm. always jokingly said mm-hmm. that he he's always been a dreamer. And so, like you said, you know, it's kind of funny that in the context of the political scene, the U.S. considers the younger generation of undocumented immigrants the dreamers. But really, like you said, it's all kind of started from them. And, you know, part of that is inclusive immigration reform that will include them because they like you said, they're also dreamers just in a different context. Um, but of course. outside of that, yeah, definitely talking with them has, you know, the first milestone I think about that my dad really kind of sat down and told me, you know, looking at you based on my experiences, it kind of comes full circle was when I graduated from college in 2017. And that being such a big hurdle to overcome being told since middle school, my parents, um, friends, and some people told me 
that, you know, Oscar's not going to make it past high school. There's just no way because he's undocumented. There's no funds. Mm-hmm. There's like colleges don't accept undocumented people. And, you know, for a lot of it was just people hadn't tried to do it. It was really that. And, you know, once we got to that, that hurdle, you know, with their support and my siblings, we, we overcame that thanks to a large part of the Gondor scholars, but also like our perseverance and resiliency as a family to be like, no, we're going to figure this out. And so my dad was like, you know, I really appreciate that you kind of stuck in the grind. You know, <laughs> there was several nights during college where I would call him and be like, dad, I, I want to quit. I want to throw in the towel. This is hard. But he was like, you know, you got this. You do you. We're doing us. Just focus on yourself. And that conversation we had was really just kind of uplifting. And I think what I got out of that was that he mentioned one of the biggest pieces of advice that I still hold close to my heart is to, to celebrate the small victories because sometimes we get caught up with shooting for that that big kind of I think about the that that pole that uh, a lot of athletes um, jump over in the Olympics that I think about like you know we always focus on that right. big one that really big high pole but sometimes we're just getting prepared and jumping the little ones and those should still be celebrations you know you made it through Monday you made it through Tuesday and so that to me is one of the biggest things that I got out of that reflection with him. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's beautiful. And I'm sure a lot of people will take inspiration from that, Oscar. Um, well, let's go back to 1999. You know, you're three years old. Your, 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 your mom decided to, you know, chase the dream as well and make the transition to, to follow your father. And, um, you know, I, one of the things that amazed me that I'd love to, for you to you know, tell us a little bit more about, um, obviously, from a context of of your parents' perspective because you were so young, but I know that when you arrived, you know, your mom was sort of denied entry and and you were a toddler alone for some time. You know, can you talk a little bit about the journey and the transition from, from Mexico to to the U S yeah. Yeah. And I think immediately I think back and unfortunately, I don't think I have a vivid memory of everything, but it's just the recollections that my parents see in their eyes and that they've passed down to me and, Part of like seeing that in their eyes to me makes it important for me to remember. So I appreciate you asking. It's, you know, shooting me back to 99 when I was three, four, um, turning four years old around that gap. My mom was just in her 20s. She was, you know, at the time, what, 23, 24. My dad was in the same age that I'm now, 25, and my dad was 26, 27. So I just really see it at this point right now in my life, how, how mm. concrete that feels to me. Of Like, I would be going through that same, you know crazy emotion right now at my age oh yeah um but going back to the context of it you know here we are we're preparing to cross through the means of you know a coyote that's going to smuggle us in scared out of her mind and so i just think i don't know what's going through her mind but i'm just like i'm scared for her Mm. and it's just frightful fortunately you know after whatever um, situation I had to go through. She made it across. She befriended some lady that her husband actually held my mom on his shoulders. Um, it's just a crazy scenario to think of what happens at the border. But, you know, thankfully this, this was a, a, a good story to tell. It wasn't something worse, you know, cause the river could have easily taken my mom away. A lot of other things could happen. And, you know, we hear these horror stories from the border. So it's, it's a very pleasant story compared to most situations. But at the end, you know, finally when I got reunited, I can't imagine as a toddler. I don't remember what I would have felt. But I, for some reason, the only thing that sticks out of my mind from that time is is a belt. That I needed a belt when I was a toddler because my pants were falling. And, you know, as a toddler, you can't have your, your child running around naked. So <laughs> that's the only thing that really vividly stands in my mind. But outside of that, we got reunited. And thankfully, nothing worse happened to my mom. 
No, of course. And thank you so much for sharing that. You know, it's a, it's always important to have that context of the steps that were taken to, you know, get us to where we are today. Right. And, um, I, I actually footnoted something that I thought was, um, you know, wonderful. And, and it was that, you know, and I think a lot of people can relate as being young immigrants, you know, you always want the instant gratification snack or the, chocolate or the you know whatever is in sight and you don't think about the monetary cost and yeah. you, know, you wrote down that um that you always wanted snacks in the vending mm -hmm. machines and and I'm, i always thought to myself like wow whenever i we used to go to the area there was a vending machine and i always wanted the snacks in there as well but it was hard to even get changed to get those snacks mm -hmm. you know and so I wanted to ask you, have you ever thought about buying your own vending machine at this point? Man, it's been such a dream that I just look at them and I'm like, it's a thousand bucks too much right now, just because like, obviously there's <laughs> other goals, but I have, if I could tell you how many times I've looked up a vending machine on eBay just to put outside my, my apartment or my house, I, I couldn't even count them. I'd be rich by now if I could count them. But yeah, like, I, like you mentioned, I mentioned that in my story and it's always been a case because it's you know, a little bit further into the story that I was telling, we ended up flying into Chicago and we got, we got placed or sorry, not placed, but we, we got off the airplane and didn't go onto our next board uh, as we were supposed to, because we didn't know English. It was just my grandma, my aunt, my mom and myself. And we, we, none of us knew English like that. So we ended up stranded on this airport waiting for my other aunt that was already in the States to come pick us up. And it was like an hour, two hour drive. And so, yeah, we're, sitting here and my mom has a hungry toddler in her hands. And the only thing I smell is French fries and, you know, being in the great land of America now, burgers, fries, everything an airport offers. And next to us is a vending machine as we're sitting there. And so of course the toddler's like, mom, quiero papitas. <laughs> and my mom just looks at me like, I, I can't feed you. And so that's really like both hard and the gratification that, yeah, I always wish to attain of like, for one, never being without food, but being able to tell your kid, and staying strong through it, like, I can't feed you right now, hold out. <laughs> That's definitely another thing that I'm sure my mom had to deal with. And to this day, yeah, I definitely want that vending machine. And I've kind of settled for a cheaper version of, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but the very retro Coca-Cola vending machines. Um, yeah. I'm trying to get one of those. I told my girlfriend, she's like, oh my God, don't do it. I'm like, but I really want to put it in like my pseudo man cave. <laughs> oh no, it's symbolic and, it, and it, I love it. It's a, it's a beautiful symbol. Yeah. So, so, you know, then, then you're, you know, you went from Chicago and transitioned to an area where you had, you had some family established, right? North Carolina, mm -hmm. you know, who, who was established in North Carolina and how, how did they help in transitioning and, and getting organized? Because, I, you know, I think there's parallels with a lot of people, you know, and for me, it was, um, my abuela was here and, you know, my, my, father's brother was here as well. And, and he helped us get settled and, you know, at least get some of the, the foundational ropes of, you know, starting to assimilate into this country. Can you talk a little bit about the people that helped your family? Yeah. Um, so immediately, you know, like I said, in Chicago, we arrived there because my, my aunt was already established in Chicago, a little bit outside of Chicago, but that was my, my dad's sister. And so we were there for a bit while we waited for my dad to finish off just because my dad was still in that communal living situation. But my mom had two brothers that, you know, had already been in the States for a while, kind of doing the migrant scene as well from Florida to North Carolina back and forth over a couple of years. And, you know, the orange industry and the tobacco and anything other produce in, uh, in North Carolina. And so 
because of them, they also knew some people back from the area, the small town called La Monera, which is in Hidalgo, where my mom was from. Very, very small town, like not even a town, probably a little village still. And so they were established there. They had a, like a single white trailer that was shared amongst like 11 to 15 different males, like just guys that knew each other just from connections from back in Mexico. And my uncles were living there. And so they, they brought us in um, after my dad finished his contract work down in North Carolina because we, we just didn't really enjoy the coldness of Chicago. I think we were about to go through the winter. And my dad was like, <laughs> no, let's go to North Carolina. And so we did. And we got established there for a little bit in that single wide with all like the, the men that were just like kind of cousins, cousins of a cousin. And um, my mom's siblings were there. And eventually we ended up renting a trailer across literally the, the dirt path there. Um, uh, from that single wide with me, my dad, my mom, and uh, my mom's younger brother. And at the time, it was just us us four or five, I think. Uh, maybe my mom's older brother joined too. But, you know, like you mentioned, it's it's just familial relationships. You know, someone knew someone and therefore you kind of ended up in that situation. And I've heard that story shared amongst a lot of other dreamers and uh, undocumented peers that I've connected with that, you know, a family member or a cousin or someone of someone knew someone and therefore that's why you gravitated toward that area right and and where did you settle in north carolina oscar so it's a very small town out kind of you know if you don't stop on i-40 or if you blink you miss it it's called newton grove north carolina um its population is around 600 as of like the last census probably so it's a really small town really uh, really tiny but I, i think i i credit a lot to the experience i grew up with to that town just because i did grow up in kind of a, a mix uh, elementary to high school experience of it was probably a third black, a third white, a third Hispanic, just because of the migrant work, the agriculture farm people that live there. And just kind of probably, you know, I, I've been exploring a lot of what segregation and what, uh, you know, our black peers ended up in as well. So I think it was a mixture of everything, but it wasn't affluent by any means at all. It was definitely, you know, a very, average school there was definitely some more affluent areas but I, I definitely think that you know you look at that experience and like you mentioned earlier like I'm still here so I think that sometimes we we take a lot of value from areas like that when we start exploring you know oh this this school district is doing better than that one but you still have very good experiences from that even if they're negative or positive you still come out really well-rounded I'd say yeah no I, I completely agree and um the experiences that you had in kindergarten was really profound and you know i could really relate to it quite a bit you know growing up um, i lived in an apartment uh, whereas a lot of the people around me had houses Mm -hmm. and they you know when when i would be dropped off i would always ask them to drop me off in the neighborhood near the apartment complex Mm -hmm. so that i would never have the embarrassment of having them pull up to the apartment you know (laughs) and it was just my immaturity at the time but but I know you had this moment of, uh, you know, as a kindergartner, um, trying to to draw your home as good as an environment can be. There's always going to be those cultural blind spots, yeah. you know, that teachers or authorities may have that, you know, wind up creating a you know, maybe a traumatic experience, but also a growth experience for us. So. Can you share the the Traila moment for everyone? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean that's also kind of probably one of the the memories I have fixated on my mm-hmm. mind and will hold dear to my heart uh, more than anything because it involves my mom. Uh, when uh, as I ex- kind of grew through that, but 
you know, I was just in kindergarten and having to deal with learning English at home. The most English I got was probably from Dora the Explorer and Blue's Clues and just shouting at the TV, repeating these phrases. So and my dad also helped me kind of with homework of using an English to Spanish dictionary. So, you know, here I was still kind of trying to understand the cultural references, the language. And in Spanish, you know, we when I, I grew up living in a single world, all, all my family members around me would call it La Traila, like, you vives en una trailer, you live in a trailer. And to me, I was like, just normal. And going to school, seeing all these other, you know, kids that came from, like you mentioned, houses or, you know, now growing up and with maturity of knowing that there's multiple ways of calling somewhere a home. But at the time, I was just like a little kid learning the language. And my kindergarten teacher was asking me to draw my house. And I was so confused. I was like, I can't draw my house. And she was like, what do you mean? And with my broken English, I was trying to explain to her, like, I don't have a house. <laughs> and they were so confused that probably they were both already thinking of bringing in a social worker. But they, they started off with an ESL teacher that um, at the time knew me very well. And her name, I, I recall, is Miss Tulia. I don't know if she'll uh, still be uh, you know, listening to this. But I remember <laughs> my mom talking about it because Miss Tulia ended up telling my mom this story. And Miss Tulia started explaining to me, like, why can't you just draw where on the vives, you know, the, in tu casa? And at that point, that's when I used my Spanish. And I was like, es, es porque no vivo en una casa, vivo en una trailer. And I, I don't live in a house, I live in a trailer. And so that's when she was like, oh, <laughs> that makes more sense as to why you're so confused about this. And so at that point, they were like, oh, okay, okay. And then just kind of tried to diffuse it in the situation and just told me, okay, then go ahead, just draw your trailer. <laughs> but I'm sure the kindergarten teacher was very confused at the time of what, why I was going through this really hard episode of not knowing how to draw my house. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, these moments are prevalent throughout the course of growing up for a lot of us. Right. And, um, you know, I remember a moment in, in fourth grade when we were studying you know, political science and we were looking into the qualifications for becoming a president or a vice president or a senator. And, um, I was really excited about the idea of being the president of the United States. <laughs> and, you know, I had one of those heartbreaking, uh, come back to realization that you're in documented yeah. moments. What other moments can you think of where it's almost like a come back down to earth moment, you know, cause we get wrapped up in, um, living our life. And, and at, at some points it feels like you're a normal American, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you get pulled back. Do you have any others that come to mind? I think I could give you plenty more, more specifically recently in this past administration that we had to deal with. But, uh, you know, as a younger version of myself up until this point, I do vividly remember the one where, you know, I was super excited in middle school seeing that all these middle schoolers that were turning 14, 14 and a half got to walk over to the high school and look like the cool kids from middle school. You know, they were eighth graders. They no longer hung out with us, you know, seventh graders, sixth graders. And I was a seventh grader at the time. I was super excited about this when I got to eighth grade. I think I was turning 14 as I was going into ninth grade and, you know, all this hype about driver's ed and all I could think of was like, I'm going to get into driver's ed once I get in ninth grade. And so the moment I, I, you know, the announcements would come on um, once I was in ninth grade, I would just wait for that moment when they started announcing classes where driver's ed coming up. And, you know, I was just excited. Like you mentioned at this point, I hadn't had any shocking events uh, outside of just being a normal middle school, high schooler. And partaking with my, you know, peers and what life is. And then one day, whenever we got to driver's ed, I sat there attentive the first day of class. I was there with one of my good friends at the time. And he was a, he was a citizen of the U.S. And so he was also excited. He had like nothing else to worry about. 
besides a ride. And so I was his ride because my dad was like, yeah, I'll pick you up after you guys are done. Anyways, that first day we get home with a piece of paper and I get home and I tell my parents like, hey, I got to fill this out so I can go in tomorrow again and give it back to the, the you know, the instructor. My parents start taking a look at it. My, my dad looks at, you know, line three. Line three is a social security number. And it's like, well, you don't have one of those. And I was like, what? what? Why don't I have one of those? How do I get one? And, you know, kind of going through the whole realization again of talking about like, you know, they told me that, you know, I wasn't documented, but I don't think it, it really hits you until you start realizing the barriers that it comes up. And so that was one of those come down to earth of like, you can't do that. And I think we get those a lot in our life as both undocumented and documented dealing with a struggle of DACA going away or, you know, not making the cut to get into DACA for a lot of our undocumented And it's, it's hard, but like you mentioned, you know, at first it's like a bring you down moment, but then there's a growth opportunity of realizing like, you know, who are you to tell me that I can't do that? Or who are you to tell me that? Sure. Maybe legal, legal wise, I can't do that, but maybe I'll figure some other way. And I think a lot of us have that spirit in us. Yeah, of course. I mean, no one's illegal on stolen land, right, Correct. my friend? And uh, especially on this day, as you mentioned, that we're celebrating. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And and so, you know, and, and that's a classic moment. I think um, that's it's it's a moment where I think the majority of documented individuals um, and undocumented individuals, our peers, of course, um, realize, you know, again, their status and you know, I guess another angle that shaped me and I was curious to ask you is dealing with racism. I, I do remember the anti-immigrant sentiment that that prevailed during fourth and fifth grade for me where, you know, I got things like wet back or, you know, and people started assuming that I loved mowing lawns and, you know, all these silly stereotypes. Right. And um, you know, I really appreciated the way you defined racism in your blog. You know, you defined it as. Um, the feeling of inadequacy, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, you don't have to tell a story, but if you could just explain your perspective on racism and, and how you've dealt with it, so perhaps you can give some tools for someone that is still feeling the burden of um, any racist scowls, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's going to be a really difficult one to, to do for everyone. I, I think the biggest piece of advice that's very general sort of trauma is really seek out the help from either your support group or if you don't have it from, you know, uh, if you're in college, if you're fortunate to be in college, a counseling center, if you're not, just reach out to, you know, there, there's a lot of um, hotlines to call in for asking for help and there will be help. Just, I think, you know, the biggest thing is don't, don't accept that, that whatever racist slur that you got or whatever it was that, that identifies you. It doesn't. And like you mentioned, you know, thinking back, I, I grew up around a lot of fields and a lot of people being called wetbacks, beaners. Um, you know, you think about it, you can probably won't entertain the idea of putting it on this podcast, the word it is. But I think for me, mm -hmm. what I ended up doing, and I think I mentioned this in the article, is that I learned to accept it. No, not accept it, but welcome it with humor because that that disabled kind of my you know, in the aggressor that would ever come at me, you know, because it mm. caught them off guard. It was immediately disarming for them of like, oh, wait, you're not supposed to find that funny. You know, this is this is supposed to give me power over you. And I think that's that's one of the biggest mm. mind shifts that I had of just with anything in life, really, that, uh, you know, especially during this administration that has been very div divisive um, right now from 2016 to 2020 with the Trump administration is they they don't define us. They 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 say these things to try and put us on an uneasy um, platform, 
of disarming us and making us feel like no inadequate and not fitting this place. But we have just as much right as anyone else to be in this country, to be here, to welcome others into this land. Because, you know, like you mentioned, it's a stolen land. But now that we can't really, you know, stay on that mindset of thinking it's stolen land, what am I going to do? How do I fix that? You know, the way to fix that is by welcoming others. And I think the biggest piece that I really found out about racism is that just embrace and celebrate the cultures that you come across in life. That's how really we're going to be able to tackle this ideas of racist people, because that's something they're not they're not aware of how to deal with. They don't know how to celebrate. And therefore, the only thing they know how to do is to bring it down. Um, and the same thing with anyone that tries to bring you down in life, you know, and going back to the idea of celebrating the small victories you get, celebrating the small pieces of culture that you interact with, be it Mexican culture or anything from Central America to our peers out in Europe. You know, there's no bad uh, culture. I think every culture is just unique and we, we need to embrace them and just accept them and accept ourselves first and foremost. Absolutely. No, wonderfully said. You know, I, I also enjoyed um, the, the angle you took of forgiveness, you know, and for me, you know, I, I agree with that as well. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, thinking back on those experiences has, has made me stronger, you know, and, and now I have a mindset of I've forgiven, but I've also I've forgiven because I know that they're coming from a hurt place. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm grateful because it's made me a better person. And so, you know, I really appreciated that, that blog post from you and your origin story. And, and you have a, a wonderful origin story, Oscar. I'm, always, I'm moved by it. And I'm moved always by, of course, any, any dreamer story. But I really appreciated, you know, looking into yours. I appreciate that. When, you know, just the things that you've accomplished as well with this podcast and the way that you're sharing, I really appreciate that, too, because, you know, it, it takes that first step in both forgiveness and to do something in like, you know, new and really life changing. And you've done it both with the way you've mentioned that you forgive. And that's important because forgiveness is a way to accept ourselves because we no longer sit on those grudges of the people that come from a hurt place are, you know, invading our space, our life with those dark thoughts. And so therefore that's, that's the first step moving on. And then also creating new things from those, that forgiveness of that sense of relief and that shows in, in your podcast that you've created here. So I really appreciate what you've done as well. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. And so diving back into your story, you know, in 09, uh, you started at Hopton high school and, uh, you know, of course, high school is a growth period for any of us. You know, you had your, your license moment, right? But more importantly, DACA came into the picture uh, June 2012. Can you recount your DACA moment? You know, when, when you heard the news, how'd that feel, um, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it, this is one of the memories I definitely can actually like kind of put myself back into my own eyes as if I was seeing it right now. And just looking at the TV in my parents' living room that we lived in at the time, you know, my, my dad finally had kind of his dream come true of buying his home here in the U.S., it was still Traila, but it was a home regardless. And at that point, I learned that you know, home is versatile. And so I was in this home that we just kind of had purchased in the previous two years. And there was a lot of emotional roller coaster happening that year with the DREAM Act failing to pass previously. And then Obama coming out saying that he was making a change for undocumented individuals. And so there I was tuned in. School had just ended for that, um, you know, that semester and just waiting and I trembled with every word that Obama was saying, you know, I, I shivered and just 
the way he starts his speech. I've listened to it, you know, in the past year, and it just kind of shocks me to think like, you know, that that's what we need. We need more people to just think about each other in the way that Obama described undocumented people. We're here to contribute. Mm -hmm. We're just looking for a path forward. We want a life here. You know, we're just trying to embrace all of our American peers. You know, we're just as American as anyone. And even that word is, you know, ill-conceived of American. You know, we're, we're, there's no word for being a United States. Like, a, you can't say like a Mexican or, you know, it's not a United States again. <laughs> but that's what we want to be. And being in that living room, I felt it. I was like, he's embracing me. And, you know, regardless of whatever other policies Obama went through in that moment, I felt really connected of just him embracing me, welcoming me to this country and giving me that opportunity that I think all of us wanted and all of us continue to want as we grow, regardless of what phase you are in your life. And so once it was over, I not even over, I think midway through, it, I started crying. I was I teared up. I cried. I was just out of joy, out of sadness that the dream act hadn't passed, out of the words that he was saying. And I, I was alone because my parents were at work. Um, I don't even remember where my siblings were, but maybe at, uh, you know, at a babysitter. But I was just there and I just sat on the couch afterwards and just reflected on the power that this man had just put into my hands of telling me I have my life in my hands again. I can do things that were before told to me that I couldn't. And, you know, that, that was just a roller coaster into a lot of, a lot of events that have happened since then. You know, it's only been eight years and that's crazy to think. And I think one of the best quotes I've had in the past year was actually from you of don't dream small. Think about what we can accomplish in 20 years. And if we've done this in eight, you know, I can't imagine what we're going to do in 20 or 30. No, man, I really appreciate you saying that. And, um, you know, I, I, I see a bright future because, you know, in 2012, that was just the first domino, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it's led to so many amazing people creating amazing lives and impacting their community very effectively, you know, and um, what what was the first path that you took when you received the news and that opportunity? Um, and, and where did your mind go about what you were going to do with this new license? Well, a lot of it was fear immediately after after receiving these great news because it was like, once you started seeing the application, it's like, oh, I'm really coming out to tell you everything about me and I have to prove all these like little, uh, you know, checkboxes. So it was fear. It was like, what if I do this wrong? What if they actually turn back and actually don't do this and I end up getting deported? So there was a lot of that in the first months. And I think one of the pieces of advice that my dad and my mom were telling me was, you know, let's let's wait it out. Let's let's we we have to wait and see who else is going to do it. And so I appreciate all those undocumented uh, and now documented that that time went through the process of being kind of our guinea pigs and paving the way. There's always someone that paves the way. And I really appreciate them because. They put us at ease. They made us realize, okay, people are actually getting this. This is happening. And so once we went through that, we actually ended up going just to a couple of clinics, getting, uh, you know, the DACA filled out. Uh, mostly I just kind of took it on by myself. And just as most things in my life, I took the bull by the horns and was like, we're going to do this, Dad. My dad pulled up God knows how many documents from all of elementary, middle school. And I was like, Dad, why did you save all these? He's like, well, don't ask me now. Just be grateful I did. <laughs> and so we went through the process. And once I filled that in, it was also kind of a, a, a moment in my life where because of DACA, Golden Door Scholars, the scholarship program that I went through was started that year. 
And, uh, you know, the CEO from Red Ventures, Rick Elias, was the one that kind of put that into motion. And since then, there's been a lot of really awesome people in the program, my girlfriend, Carly Tucker included, that have helped this program move forward. So I was also dealing with the DACA application as well as dealing with going through college application because now this pathway that opened up was one of college, the one that so many people had told me was going to be near impossible. And I can't say that it really is near impossible if you're undocumented. It's kind of, you know, hard to get the funds, hard to get schools at the time. Even I had to call so many schools to ask them, like, do you accept undocumented students? And, you know, a lot of them came back saying, no, we don't. We don't even know what undocumented means. Some of them responded and I was like, what do you mean you don't know? Like, isn't this a government thing? Shouldn't you be aware of this? But fortunately, it all played out well. Got into college in the summer of 2013 um, I toured UNC Charlotte, fell in love with it. And that was, you know, that's my alma mater where I went to and super happy with all the events that kind of put me in that place. No, that's beautiful. And and I can appreciate that education was the first, you know, leap, leap stone that you, you jumped on. For me, before DACA, because I received it at about the same time you did mm-hmm. junior, senior year of high school. And, um, and it was a period of a lot of envy for me, you know, and I would see my friends, you know, the ones that were taking advantage of what they already had inherent to their life and the ones that were not, you know, and it was two different kinds of envy, um, you know, because, you know, obviously the ones that were taking advantage, it was like, man, I wish I could do the same things. Um, And the ones that weren't, it was like, you know, why, why aren't you moving? You know, you have a citizenship, right? And, um, can you speak on that a little bit? I mean, did you ever feel the envy or did you feel that sense of jealousy against maybe some of your peers, um, you know, maybe quietly or, or, or more upfront? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely vividly remember the feeling of importance of just not being able to do the thing because of one lack of paper or, and seeing these people around me that both were either taking advantage of it or not. And really, honestly, like my, my passion grew the most out of seeing people that wouldn't. And I was like, I would ask them, like, why don't you have a permit, like a driver's permit? And they're like, oh, I just haven't gone to like the driver's, uh, the DMV to get it. And I'm like, is, do you not have a car? Do you need a ride? <laughs> I was like, what is stopping you from getting there? And that would just fire me up of like, what is it with the fact that you have this and you're just like, oh, it's it's just something, you know, I can do, but I don't want to or I don't need to. And it's like out of that came that that fiery passion of mine of like there's so many people out there that are struggling and all they need is that one shot, that one chance. And if, if we give them like, man, this country would improve by leaps and bounds. It's just just to think of how many people are out there waiting for that one one lucky shot. And we're holding a bunch of them back just because of this documentation piece. It's it's crazy to me. And and I've also even talked about this now that I'm older of the people that decide to um, expatriate from the U.S. I'm like, can I get their citizenship? Like, you know, they're they're choosing to leave. <laughs> can I just get theirs? So that that's always bewildered me in such a way that to this day, I still don't know how to fully process it besides like, you know, we'll get there. That's really the best thing I have to tell myself sometimes of I might not have that. I might not get it, but I'll get to the goals that I need to get to in my own way. Of course. And and you have one of the most beautiful definitions of the American dream that I've read. You know, your definition is of the American dream is finally being recognized as an American on paper, you know, and and I love that, Oscar, that that's that's really beautiful. And 
Um, and you're right. I mean, DACA has been the most successful immigration policy since the 1980s. You know, um, it's created so much economic and and social, you know, stimulus that um, you know at times we have to remember to remind people through numbers, you know, what what has happened here, right? And um, and so diving into you into you and how you took advantage of this opportunity, you know, again, you, so going back to starting school at UNC Charlotte and and I can't imagine how joyous that must have been. How did you choose what you were going to study and, and who you wanted to become and, and the steps you're about to take, you know, in school? Yeah, and I think I've been very fortunate. Um, I, I definitely always keep that in mind that, you know, my story is both unique in, in the perseverance I've had, but also the challenges might not have always been near as catastrophic as some. And so I do appreciate anyone that does have those experiences. But for me, it was fortunate that uh, my dad's boss at the time was kind of getting into this idea of trying to understand because he was asking my dad and keeping up with him, especially my dad working at this company for 20 years now at the time. It was, what, 10, 15 years. He was asking my dad, like, you know, what does Oscar do? He's a senior high school. His daughter was kind of the same process of applications. And my dad had to explain to him, like, it's not it's not that simple for Oscar, even though growing up, he would always tell my my his boss of like the good grades I would get. He was like, be like confused. Like, why isn't that simple? And so. Fortunately, he got in, intrigued of kind of falling like, why, as an undocumented, do you not have opportunities? And so he kind of worked as my pseudo counselor at the time and advised me that because I like math and science, I could uh, pursue something like engineering. And so that was kind of really, I had no other context like what I should pursue than that, um, especially since as you know, first generation immigrants, first generation college students, we don't usually have any professionals in our families to tell us like, Hey, you know, this is a good career. This is another good career. It's just kind of like right. you, whatever you find on the internet. And I remember even in middle school, I did a project of a career that I would enjoy in my, my computer classes, like kind of a typing skills test for, to see if we could actually type something up. And funny enough, at the time I tried choice mechanical engineer, but that was really, I think probably the only thing in my subconscious to lead me to that UNC Charlotte and, you know, two years in, I realized I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like the physics aspect of it. And that was okay. At the time, it was shocking that it wasn't okay. But I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to finish my education. But thankfully, through the Condor Scholar Program, I had really good support with a mentor and also like the director for GDS at the time, now the VP for all of social impact at Red Ventures, Casey Grantham. Um, they advised me, of like, you know, this isn't, I mean, this isn't the end of everything what else do you like? And so at the time I was like, well, I really like computers. And just because of the scholarship um, requirements they, uh, or like restrictions of how much money they could allot to me, especially since they want to support so many more um, students that we figured out that finishing off a uh, bachelor's in mathematics and doing a minor in computer engineering would satisfy that kind of itch of the computer piece. And, you know, I could still figure it out down the road, especially with internships. And I actually ended up did getting several internships, which is part, thankfully, to DACA of being able to get those internships as well as being able to work on campus and um, be self-sustainable and not just depend on my parents, especially when they're, they were still, you know, they're not rich by any means. And so setting aside money to send to me was still even a struggle. With And I think that's the biggest piece that sometimes people don't realize that even though people get scholarships or, uh, you know, full ride, they're still expenses, both from like furniture, food, what, what are you going to, where are you going to drive to, doctor's visit. Um, and DACA allowed me to be a bit more self-sustainable than what I would have been if I was just completely undocumented because I got to work my sophomore year, my junior year, and my senior year. I didn't work my freshman year just because I had no idea what the heck I was getting into, but 
that was one of the other bigger pieces that not just education, but just a job. Yeah, absolutely. You were a housing advisor, right? Yes. Yes. All, all, all two years of my sophomore and junior year. What any experiences that stand out as being a house housing advisor, um, you know, as a documented individual and any, you know, moments you had there? Well, I just think back to like what kind of started it with the interviews of both the group interviews that I had to go through to go through the RA position, which is what they call it, resident advisor, and then the personal interview. And one of the things they told me, you know, that in the time I was like, you would have never met me if it weren't for DACA was that out of all the candidates that, that, the candidates that year, and I'm sure they were being nice, but they were like, you know, you, you scored probably one of the highest in regards to your background of what you want to get into. And part of it was because I was in the honors um, dorm because I, I'd been invited to join the university honors program uh, my freshman year. But I was also in the international housing. And funny enough, I was qualified as an international student because of my undocumented status. When I had to apply to UT Charlotte, I was categorized as an international student. Um, while I wasn't, obviously, because you know, I really never left the country since I was you know, brought here. But putting that into my background essay when I was applying, they were like, you know, you obviously have the, the right uh, background, the skill set for this dorm that you are advocating we put you in. And to me, that was just like both an honor and just really good um, compliment. But I was like, you would have never met me before this or I would not have this opportunity if it weren't for like, you know, the DACA executive action in 2012, you know, I, you wouldn't have this opportunity and I wouldn't have this opportunity. So to me, that was just crazy, a crazy moment coming together. And I had a blast just doing that, both meeting people from Europe, Central America, Mexico, South America, just because I was in that international home, uh, dorm, as well as very smart and bright individuals that all had this similar dream of just being successful and getting their bachelor's and going on to graduate school or whatever job they wanted. No, absolutely. And, and there is this, um, commality with uh you know documented individuals uh and their their willingness to strive and you know i always i think it's rooted on gratitude of course it's different for a lot of different people um but i mean it shows you know especially in your resume and um and that led you to red ventures right you started interning at red ventures and it's been a period of growth for you and um and and also it's been a, a part of your support system throughout your your growth since DACA, right? And so, can you talk a little bit about how you got started at Red Ventures? You know why why Red Ventures? Um, and I know there is that connection through the Golden Golden Door Scholars um, and the CEO being yeah. one of the founders. Yeah, so it, it did start from there, but really, you know. Part of the program at the time, since it was so small, I was directly in touch with the director um, and my mentor of them asking me, like, you know, sophomore year, what are you doing for internships? And the the summer before my freshman, my freshman summer, after coming out of that first year, I just went back with my parents and worked um, what I've been doing since uh, I was around 15, just because I was kind of allowed to kind of clean up around really. So my dad works in manufacturing kayaks, stillwater kayaks, and around the company they would drop like plastic here and there, of like unwrapping different pieces of the the assembling piece. And so I would do that for summers where the boss, again, like uh, mentioned, was really in tune of being aware that I was in a different circumstance. And so he was like, you know, he can't work, but he wants to work. And so he would help me out by just giving me like twenty, thirty dollars, um, you know, for cleaning up around the place, hanging out with my dad. Um, helping here and there. So that was all I knew. And so that first summer, that's what I went back to do. I went back that summer now having to be able to be fully employed. I was like, now I can actually work there 
under like my name and like the biggest moment of my life was being able to clock in officially as my like my name of being like I'm a worker here so that was that was pretty funny but the summer after that um I think the people at Gondor Scholars were like okay you actually need to do something you know in your career uh that you're trying to shoot for and so they were asking like you know what are you shooting for I told them like I have no idea I've been applying they want upperclassmen for internships right now and so Casey Grantham again was coming in clutch again asking me like okay what are, what are you interested in I was like you know I like computers so like what if we get you an internship in in Red Ventures at, in their IT department and so I met with the CTO at the time or the acting CTO at the time um, and he was like yeah we can get you on the desk support team where it was just like you know um, anything technical like breaks on your computer we fix it and we replace your laptop wherever just technical stuff. So I did that for two summers. Um, I loved it. They loved me. It was a great mix of just being able to grow myself technically as well as um, in the corporate setting. You know, I think the other piece that I've learned is that not only are you first generation immigrant, sometimes first generation college student, but you're also first generation corporate. <laughs> as in, nobody in your family has ever had a job like this. And so learning right, right. all there is to like being in the corporate setting also comes with it. Fortunately, I, I think I had really good management at the time, and they understood, you know, the lack both. I think what surprised me was that they didn't approach it from the fact that it was undocumented or didn't have any other references. They were just like, oh, it's another college student that's never had to do any of this stuff. And so that was a little bit easy of like not having to explain myself of like, this is why I actually don't know, not because I'm just a regular college student. But it actually helped me that they just kind of welcomed me in, taught me the ropes and got me going. And after that, you know, I was looking into a career like, okay, I want to do computer stuff. I don't know what that means, but I want to do something with computers. And I actually did after my junior year, when I finished up that semester, the manager at the time was like, we could probably get you in here if you want a full-time job after you graduate. Or he was like, we could actually just take you in. Just don't go back. And I was like, mm, I'm going to finish off just because it's one more year, but thank you. Um, and actually, funny enough, I actually still was so in tune to Red Ventures, but it was not really purposeful that last year. My senior year, I was looking for another job because I didn't want to be a resident advisor because I wanted to kind of explore what else is in Charlotte. And so I was going to apply for a part-time job outside of that. And I actually ended up working at an exit strategy in um, Charlotte, which is an escape room place. And I only did that for a month and a half more, I think, because an opportunity came up. But I think that was also one of the best opportunities to have just because it was really cool to learn. Like you watch these people go into this room and try to get out. And both it's funny to watch and both to explain the rules too of like, please don't break the walls. Um, so it was just a pleasant time of discovering that there's so many opportunities work-wise. And finally, whenever I also realized there was another opportunity at Red Ventures because they opened up a new location near my school, I went and did part-time sales. And it was a running joke in IT because supposedly I was so horrible as a tech um, with the people that were around me that were like, oh, we're going to send you to the sales department because they also did sales. And they were like, well, you're going to end up, you know, we're going to end up supporting you because we would support the sales department. And funny enough, the joke came through. I worked six months in their sales department and I messaged them once I got the job. I was like, hey, you know, that joke that we had, it actually came through. But that's really, I've learned everything there is about Red Ventures and uh, in regards to like their business model uh, at the start, at least. Um, and now it's just developed to where after graduating college, I was looking at as many opportunities again because, you know, the world is my oyster now that I have DACA or world at least limited to the U.S. <laughs> border. But <Right. laughs> um, once I found several opportunities, Red Ventures, still, again, just kind of made the most sense. It's just uh, a place that really takes a lot of young individuals that are usually coming out of college, but gives them a lot of ownership in regards to the projects they need. 
because they know you're young, they know you're not going to know much, but they're also kind of um, one of the models is speed trumps perfection, meaning that sometimes we just need to go fast. And if we don't get it right the first time, because we're going so fast, we'll get there quicker than just getting the right person or the right skill set. Um, and so that's kind of one of the biggest things that's helped me stay in that growth mindset and continue to grow myself at Red Ventures. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful, and and I'm glad to hear that you you're a part of such a great company. And um, I had a follow up question from something you said earlier. What has been the biggest challenge of transitioning to the corporate world for you know you know for for a dreamer that's listening that may be intimidated about working at a you know a big company? Um, what what uh, where did you struggle initially not having that experience? Yeah, and I mean the first first piece that I think about is just you show up to work and nobody looks at you. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of white people to be quite frank. And, you know, there'll be a couple of black peers. You'll see a couple Hispanics, Latinx that, you know, at least for a majority, not to presume that all immigrants and undocumented are Hispanic. But like that, that for me was the hardest one. And I'm sure for a lot of people with whatever background you're coming from will be the hardest thing for you to find in a corporate setting, because, you know, it's not usually the immigrants um, or more than anything undocumented immigrants that are in these settings. And so that was challenging. But again, I think this is why I mentioned earlier that I'm very fortunate that because this company was already so involved in the undocu scene with the Gondor Scholars program, they had employees that worked as mentors or not worked, but volunteered as mentors for the program. And so this company is very you know, keen on knowing what undocumented means. And so I didn't have to struggle a lot with a lot of people of trying to explain, like, this is what it means to be DACA. This is what it means to be undocumented. Most people, not most, but a good percentage already knew what that meant. And a lot of people don't have that. And I know that's intimidating to have to explain, or sometimes you don't even want to bother explaining. You just want to fit in. You just want to be normal. Right. You know, and one of the biggest pieces I've heard is whenever we have to present our work authorization card to the HR department, sometimes we don't have that, want to have that conversation with HR team about like, what is this? Especially if they don't know, like some colleges where they were like, we don't even know what it means to be undocumented. Um, And so sometimes you just show up and like, oh, I just need to show you this so you can hire me and that's it. But I've been very fortunate where I don't need to explain that. And a lot of like HR um, um, reps at Red Ventures are aware and they'll just reach out like, hey, Oscar, we know it's around that time for, you know, the thing to expire. So just let us know when you get the new one and, you know, that'll be it. And so that's really good experience. That's a really positive, like, oh, yeah, it's pretty normal. They just need to update their record and that's it. You know, they don't make a big deal out of it. Or, you know, they sometimes even ask, like, how's your family? Just because I, they have to reach out um, much more frequently to me sometimes because of that. And so they, they get to know me. And to me, that's really nice. It's really kind. Um, and I know other people don't have that. And so I know that's why it's, it's kind of a spoiled moment. But I do know that it is a challenge elsewhere. And one of the ideas I actually had, I don't know if I shared it with you, but what if we started an undocu company run by undocu people to explain to all these companies and their HR departments what it means to be undocumented and how they should traverse that with other fellow undocumented peers that might need to cross that avenue in, in the future? I was like, you know, that could easily be a niche um, consultation uh, company, and uh, it just thought it was funny that it DACA creates this niche uh, opportunity. Uh, so it, it's the hardest thing, and I think to answer really your question, and it's hard because there's so many things. But the main thing is just like you know, you'll feel like you don't fit in being first gen corp. You'll you'll feel like this isn't for you, and I think we've all felt like that from the very get go. Once we start doing something that most of our family hasn't done. But just accepting and being like, no, I do belong here. This is for me. And I choose what is for me. Yeah, no, definitely. That That's a, 
you know, such a profound point. Um, and I, I think it's part of the reason too, why, you know, as I'm, you know, diving deeper into our, you know, DACA mentored community, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it's be, you know, maybe it is because in the, obviously this is an inference, but maybe it is because they don't feel like they fit into a corporate environment and all of the, uh, foundational ingredients of what made them them is also you know what makes a great entrepreneur and so you know I, it, it's it's really interesting to to ponder on that but you know i wanted to ask too obviously you know you had this connection with red ventures but you know you graduated right and and that's such a beautiful moment <laughs> I, I tell you Scott, i tear up at every single uh college graduation <laughs> i'm at because I can feel I can feel those moments of all the blood, sweat, and tears on from from the family and from the student, and just it's such a joyous um, ceremony. So, can you talk a little bit about that day and what it meant for you and your family? And um, you know, your family now has a has a college graduate in America, right? And that's that's amazing. Yeah, and more to come. My my siblings are well on their way too. I'm super proud of them. Super excited for yeah. what they're accomplishing. But man, yeah, I mean, they my siblings were there for that day too. My mom, my dad, and uh, my aunt, my uncle, and their family. And I just my grandma. My grandma also, fortunately, on my dad's side, got her tourist visa. Of, of finally, after years and years of applying approved in 2013 so she was actually there to drop me off the day i started college and she was there uh, to see me graduate unfortunately my grandma and mom's side uh, had still been going through applications of you know to tourist visas as well so she couldn't come but man just seeing them there with you know the the gown that i had so anticipated just wearing with them around them and i was nervous i was I was both nervous. I'm like, oh my God, I think I didn't know where to sit. It's a huge event. Like some of them don't speak English where they get lost. And I was like, I can't even be there with them. But then I was just like, they're here. It'll be okay. And I just breathed, lined up with everyone else, saw my family going to the doors and got excited with a couple of people that were next to me that I knew, you know, we started doing, I still have a Snapchat video of me being goofy in the line and Finally, here we are. We get sat down. They go through this whole ordeal. I just, my heart is pulsing. And all I can feel is that my family is somewhere out there in the stands. I have no idea where they might be, but they're up there somewhere. And I know that I stand and sit with them throughout this entire experience. When I finally get up, start walking to cross the stage, an idea pops in my head. It's like, I'm going to stop. Nobody else is stopping. Like nobody else is celebrating whether I get there. But like, I'm gonna do that because that this is my time. This is what I work for. And I was nervous. I was like, "What if they get mad? What if they tell me not to do that?" I was like, "Whatever." I just kind of ease my nerves. I finally um, looked at my phone. My parents were like, "We're in this corner." So I looked up towards that area, and I could vaguely see some balloon that my grandma had come in with. And I was like, "Okay, they're <laughs> up there." So that's the direction I'm gonna face. The person in front of me is crossing the stage. And here I am, I, I slowed down a bit because, you know, letting them have their moment and also to kind of give me a little bit of time to have extra time on there. And I, I ease into it. I walk in stride step by step and I shake this person's hand. I can't even remember who they were, but someone important from the school. All I'm thinking is my family is out there. This is for us. This is what we've strived to do, what they've supported me to do and what my siblings will be doing in some years. And I turn, look face forward 
turn a little bit to the to the corner where my parents are, I raise my hands in victory, and I just shout like I just a big yes, and wow. then I just walk on. But that that to me was the moment that just kind of brought it together. Like we we've done it, you know. They've been there for me. I've been there for them, and we are here together. No, for sure. That's man. That's so beautiful. I, I can see it. And uh, I wish I was there. That that just sounds like a great moment. <laughs> so, you, you know, um, of course, you're you're an engineer now, and you're you're really in tune with um, with you know IT and and you know computer programming, and really just as an umbrella term, digital transformation. And so, you know, one of the the things that I found so amazing about you, Oscar, is that you know, you're spending some of your time helping nonprofits and, you know, particularly nonprofits that are in the immigration rights space to transform digitally. And, and, and I applaud you for that. It's amazing. Um, any best case studies and what was your initial motivation to start doing, you know, that and taking those actions? It kind of ties back into my blog a little bit of just getting into the digital space of getting our voice heard, our voices, you know, immigrants as just kind of marginalized communities in general, that when my blog started, I was like, okay, how can I use this blog to enhance not just my voice, but others' voice? And that transitioned into when I started November 2019 into this year, when the pandemic started, my family was struggling to find resources for COVID. And, you know, there was so much noise, so much different um, variables. And I was like, for one, it's hard to find it in English. And two, there's no translation. And so I just kind of started hounding the web for like a day or two, obsessed with this, of uh, finding as many resources and sharing with my family. And then I just compiled them into one blog post. And that's when I was like, I'm sure there's more people doing this. Like, there's got to be. And sure enough, I found a group on, on Facebook that was holding like a town hall meeting for uh, several organizations in North Carolina about COVID and um, translating them into being bilingual and just finding resources for the immigrant community, um, marginalized communities. And so I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's what I need to join. And I just joined a random meeting. Um, they had everyone go around, uh, around Robin, introduce themselves. I was just this brand face. I, everybody was like tied to an organization. I was like, hi, I'm Oscar. I'm here by myself. <laughs> I just want to hear what y'all are doing. And that kind of spun it off where I met um, Eliana uh, from Poder NC Action. And she was like, let's connect. Um, you know, I hardly ever meet anyone that's both Latinx, an immigrant, undocumented, and a, a software engineer because we need the help <laughs> in tech. And so she was like super excited. She's the, the hype woman of my life whenever it comes to any project that I'm doing with her. She just kind of was like super excited, like we're going to get it done. If things go wrong, we'll figure it out. Uh, really great woman to have in regards to handling a project. And that kind of spurred everything into the, the space where I started with them. We She had this idea for starting a voting resource hub for um, both English and Spanish speakers, mostly for the Latinx community in North Carolina. We worked on this project called votemosnc.com. And it's just been amazing just connecting with them and the amount of excitement that I, I see that really, like you mentioned, you know, that whenever you come across someone that is like you, but also is kind of like the same people that you're trying to help to them, it's like surprisingly exciting. It's like we, we've been hiring like companies that are, you know, owned by white people and they don't really get the reason why we're doing this sometimes. So it's sometimes it's really super helpful to have you have that context already and we don't have to build that for you. For you to be aware of, like you know, why we're doing this, what needs to be done, what considerations we should take, and 
through her, she's connected me with a couple other organizations that picked up another um, um, project with Comunidad Colectiva in Charlotte, where actually um, uh, Stefania, the lady that runs this program, she was in Immigration Nation with the most recent Netflix um, show mm. of that program. And she was like in the third, fourth episode. And I was just like, oh, my God, you're like a celebrity in the space. Like, I don't believe I can't believe I'm meeting you from there. Um, Maria, which is running a, a site called Adelante MC. And it's just kind of snowballed. It's, it's pretty wild how much, like you mentioned, transformation they need that they're seeking. And there's like not a lot of people that they want specifically that already has this context available to help. And so it's just been amazing for me and humbling to be a part of that. Um, and then from that, I have actually reached out because my hometown, I went home and it's a very rural town, a very conservative town that, you know, there's Trump signs galore. And I was like, there's gotta be like some Democrats um, organizing in the, in the County, even though uh, what I see isn't re- reflective of that. And sure enough, I connected after hounding the internet again um, with, the, with the County's democratic party and now, like, I'm helping them make a website because the website they have was back in like, 2015 where, you know, they were making an effort to get a site. But again, it's like the people either like fall through or just don't, um, you know, don't have time to work on it. And so I'm working on a website for them. This has been very, very rewarding in itself just to be able to see these these organizations that really, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it all comes down to that opportunity that they need to kind of shine. And being able to help them get there is really, really amazing to me. Yeah, no, and... I have to say it's it's some of the best work that can be done, you know, in this moment. And and, you know, I'm seeing, you know, you're starting to blossom into something incredibly special, Oscar. And, um, it, you know, it's great to see my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, the the last question I'll ask is, you know, about the future, you know, and, and I know you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we were talking and um, and, you know, I was I was trying to see how we could impact maybe five, 10 years down the line. And, and you mentioned you, you know, that a lot of us, our vision is limited to those two years or now, of course, the, the one year of a renewal of a renewal. Um, but I want to challenge you a little bit here and, and ask, you know, where do you see yourself in 2030? Where, who is Oscar Romero in 10 years at 35? I think I, I continue to contemplate it every day and, you know, everything aside of those limitations of DACA, not thinking through that, because I also was told by a friend I met through an organization for Latinx and Tech, Tequeria, when I was talking to him and I actually posted his interview on the blog site as well, Carlos. He was like, you know, the knowledge that I gain that's in my head, nobody can take that from me. And so that's kind of really allowed me to kind of be a visionist without worrying about those repercussions of DACA going away. And so really in 2030, if the route that I'm seeing right now, the, the little road that I'm, I'm starting to pave and kind of forge on makes sense and it looks adequate and it helps my family out because I think that's one of the biggest things that I definitely have on mind of how can I set up myself for success, not just for me, but even though I don't have any kids, I, you know, I see my siblings as my kids just more than anything because of the age gap that kind of allow, allowed for that, but also just they're also my brothers and my brother and my sister and I want to care for them. I want to help them out. My parents as well, if they like need a new car or like, you know, the car is either like needs um, fixing. I want to be a part of those moments for them. And if this, this road forward is fruitful and gives me the things I need, then in, tw- in 2030, I, I want to see myself even more involved with the democracy scene of 
there, there's so much obsolete technology being used today, and we've seen that come out in this election so much. Um, there are organizations out there working to improve that. And I think it's going to take more individuals like myself and others that are interested in this space and have a technical background to get involved and help move those forward. And, you know, if possible, if I could make the, the perfect job for myself, you know, I'd be leading a project to help improve either, you know, the way we do phone dialing for phone banking, text banking, or, you know, even submitting your vote. If, if the government opens up a way for me to get involved in that career to improve the way we handle voting, you know, cause that's the biggest issue right now that we're dealing with, especially with COVID that a lot of people, you know, they might not live by a post office. They might not live by their voter election board. And so they can't easily drop it off their absentee ballot if that's the route they're going with. And even voting in person is sometimes uh, shocking when you have a job that might not give you the time off. And so there's a lot of a lot of uh, ways we can improve um, how our democracy is run. And, you know, sometimes I think a lot of our government officials, not a lot of them, but a lot maybe forget that democracy means that it's for the people not for the government. You know, this democracy means that we elect people that will represent us. And so we need to make that priority again. We need to tell, show them that it's not about these companies that pay big money to, you know, lead them one way or another. It's about the people. And those companies are people, but we need to make it equitable so that they hear all the voices that need to be heard for the changes that are needed for the community. And so in 2030, I want to be in a position where I'm leading those efforts, where I'm helping position myself and other organizations to make the most of their digital platform, be it websites or whatever way that they're trying to communicate with um, the people in their communities to go out to vote, to be aware of the candidates that they're voting for. That, that's where I see myself in 2030. Wow. Uh, you're a class act and, and that's an incredibly selfless vision for, for 10 years down the line. Um, thank you so much for your time, Oscar. And, you know, I, I really do look forward to collaborating collaborating with you to to make our American dream come true, right? Because I agree with your definition of finally being recognized as an American on paper. And, um, you know, I, I look forward to making that a reality too. Thanks, Hugo. And, you know, this has been wonderful. I definitely enjoy it here. And I am super excited to hear the other stories that you come up with and find because there's so many out there. And the biggest piece right now is that we're getting a voice in the scene and, you know, tech has made it possible for that platform and we'll continue to use it and leverage it as we can for that. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that you two are a very great visionist and, you know, you've given me a lot to ponder in the short term, short time that I've met you. And one of the biggest things that I think, you know, we could start getting people hype about is that, you know, great conference that one day we'll have with all of our undocumented peers, be it, you know, documented, undocumented, any dreamer will be welcome. We're going to make it happen, my friend. Thank you so much. Um, this is fantastic. Thank you, Google.